0: Hello everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. What we're really trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, the SALT Conference. And and what we're trying to do at those conferences and on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Devin Parekh to Salt Talks. Uh, Devin joined Insight Partners, which is a leading global private equity and venture capital firm in 2000, and has been a managing director with the firm since 2002. He also manages the firm's largest investment team, doing deals across the spectrum of venture, growth and late stage leverage transactions. As head of Insight Partners, Devin manages investments in application software, data and consumer internet businesses globally, having actively worked with investments in Europe, Israel, China, Latin America and Russia. Devin has led 68 deals at Insight, deploying 4.3 billion in capital to date with 38 exits averaging gross multiple returns of 2.6 times. Devin sits currently on 16 Portfolio Company Board of Directors and advises many other CEOs more informally. In addition to his investment work, Devin has been a leader and a vocal advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's been a uh, primary driver of initiatives and thought leadership programs within Insight, promoting female and minority leadership across Insight's portfolio, in the larger software and investment ecosystems. I would also note that Devin has appeared on numerous industry award lists, including the Forbes Midas list several times, the list of top 100 venture capitalists by CB Insights. And he also won an award uh, from the Venture Capital 100 for his investments in 2014 in Twitter and Chegg. Uh, Just a reminder, if you have any questions for Devin during today's SALT Talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview.
1: John, thank you for wearing your sports jacket today. Uh, Devin, of course, you don't have to wear one, but you know, I came with the suit and tie. I just want everybody to know that. Now, I may be wearing the suit and tie from the waist up, but that, we'll leave that up to Zoom and the pandemic. Devin... Tell us something about your career that we couldn't learn on Wikipedia
2: well I was the thing I would tell you is I don't ever expected to be sitting here talking to you talking about technology
1: uh, oh, amen I, well of course not I mean you had why and by the way we're still trying to figure out why you accepted the invitation but you know we can ask your psychiatrist that later I mean but tell us something why did you why'd you go in this direction
2: well I actually started out I, I started out in college and uh, studying biochemistry. Uh, and I, I had a full intention of being uh, a doctor uh, and probably doing an MD, PhD uh, and going to research. I mean, that was kind of my plan. And I think at the end of the day, I'm sitting here talking to you because I was I was impatient. Uh, I ended up with a bunch of roommates who were uh, economics majors or Wharton majors. Uh, I figured that one was going to be a 12-year path to starting my career. One was going to be a lot shorter path to starting my career. So I, may, I ended up Transferring to Wharton out of the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, and ended up going to business, um, and um, I started my career at Blackstone, um, and uh, went from there to a merchant banking boutique called Barons um, and Manell Company, and, and then uh, joined Insight in 2000.
1: So we 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 find our way though, right? I mean, that's more or less. You know, we're we're making a plan, and then things happen to us, and we go in different directions, but you uh, strike me as somebody that really loves what you're doing. And so we have a lot of young people that join these salt talks. And so what would you say to them about your personal odyssey to getting to where your passion is? And what, what would your advice be to them? Well,
2: to, I'll, I'll start by just giving the advice I give my, my own kids. I've got a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old, um, and I have my simple advice to them is find something that doesn't feel like work. Uh, and if it doesn't feel like work, you'll probably be great at it. And, you know, they have obviously have the question, well, what are the careers where I can make enough money? And, and, you know, my answer to that is if you're great at something, you'll figure it out, uh, and you'll adapt your lifestyle to something that you're passionate about. So that, that to me is it. that to me is the most important, but then the second really is, I think you have to, while you have to have a plan, um, understand that plans are adaptable. Um, and when opportunities come across your path that maybe don't fit within the plan, but that are compelling, that, you, that, that kind of call you, go for it. Um, and you can always course correct. Uh, and I, as I go back and look at my career, it's those were the things, the ones where I kind of jumped on something that wasn't part of the plan, uh, that really worked out well.
1: So, you have an interesting model. I mean, the Insight Partners, uh, it sort of looks this way to me, and I'm sure you'll agree with me. It it looks like it's a hybrid between private equity and venture capital. And it seems like it's a blended structure. Can you tell us how that works, what the benefits are of that, and how you guys decided to go in that direction?
2: Yeah, so if you look at when Insight was founded back in 1995, Um, You know, our strategy was really focusing on, you know, at the time, these terms that we use today, like scale up didn't really exist. Uh, What we called it then was expansion stage software. So what do we mean by that? Uh, What we meant was uh, companies, they weren't weren't just ideas. Uh, There was a product, um, there was an entrepreneur, and most importantly, there were customers. And expansion stage capital was to take that kind of fundamental product, so there's some product market fit that existed. And the capital is really going to kind of then expand uh, the company through investment in sales, marketing, potentially acquisitions. Um, and so you're taking kind of base technology risk off the table. Uh, you're taking some level of adoption risk off the table because you already had customers. And you're really taking primarily kind of execution risk. Now, back in 1995, when Insight was founded, there were not lots of profitable uh, software companies. Um, there were a few, but not many. Um, and so most of the capital kind of went in to do, as I said, it make incremental investments in the business. But fast forward to 2020, um, and we'll go more into this later. But software is an incredibly powerful model with very high margins. And so what we basically said is that once we decided that all we were going to do is software uh, as a firm, um, we basically said we wanted to be we wanted to be able to serve the full continuum. Um, from kind of the the early growth company all the way to uh, really mature profitable companies. And so we've kind of taken an approach where we have a sourcing team of close to 50 people that are basically looking for the best software companies globally, proactively reaching out to them. Um, uh, We have an investment team that kind of then finds the best companies. And our approach is to go to them and say, listen, we don't care whether you want to sell 10% of the company, you want to sell ninety percent of the company, or you want to sell something? Uh, you, you want to sell something in between? You're a great business. We love your market. You've got a great team. We want to find a way to work together. Um, not have an approach that we only do control deals or only do minority deals. We want to be in great companies. And then lastly, uh, we have now we have a seventy person operating group um, that kind of is really able to work with companies, not to run them, because our model is not to go in and we want to back great entrepreneurs what that operating team really does is share best practices because what we view ourselves as good at is pattern recognition. What works over here? How do we apply it over there? And that, that team's role is really uh, to play that. We can go into any one of
1: those in more detail, but that just that's, that's really the approach we're taking. And it's working out amazingly, but now we're dealing with a COVID-19 pandemic. And so has this changed Anything about the business, Devin? From your perspective, has your investment philosophy changed? The deployment of the capital—what's different today in the post-COVID nineteen world?
2: Well, like like all of us, um, you know, we walked out of the office one day in March, and you know, haven't really been back since. Um, uh, and you know, I think if you had asked us at the end of March, and I you know spoke to our LPs at the beginning of April, uh, I told them that they should expect you know significant pressure on valuations. Um, they should probably expect, you know, significant decline in our investment pace. Uh, and that we didn't really have a lot more visibility to be able to offer, but given that we were likely going to see the largest economic contraction since the Great Depression, it was hard to hard to assume that it was going to be anything but challenging conditions for the next, you know, nine months. And here we sit in, you know, November, uh, and that's really not the way uh, it played out. Um, you know, tech uh, has been extraordinarily resilient. Um, we've done 27 deals since COVID. Um, we've deployed as much capital this year as we deployed last year, um, and um, so everything about what's happened, we can talk about why that is. But anything, everything about what I would have predicted, uh, you know, at the end of March
1: hasn't really played out that way. So, so tell us about that because I think that's another big point about life and adapting and things are happening that you don't expect certainly none of us thought that we would be in a global pandemic perhaps you did i thought it was a likelihood someday we might have a pandemic but i didn't think it was going to be imminent and uh, it came upon us in my opinion very quickly caused all of us to make some adaptations to our business uh obviously i would love to be doing this with you in a live event a live salt event uh, which hopefully someday yeah. will be able yeah exactly so hopefully someday we'll be able to do that so so, uh, go through that thought process, go through the machinations, the adapt and pivot, and, 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 and also then explain how you identify that in good leaders in the companies that you're investing in. Well,
2: look, I, I start by saying this, I'll start with a pre COVID, just a general comment, and then we'll talk about COVID. But, like, you know, I think what people underestimate is the impact, of how much they touch software uh, in their lives, right? So, you use your uh, iPhone as your alarm clock. You know that software. Uh, you get up and you ask your Alexa the weather, that software. Uh, you get into your car and you put something in a navigation system, that software. The average car today has uh, uh, 10,000 more lines of code than a Boeing 737 software code. Um, you go to the bank to get money out of the ATM machine, that software. You show up at the office uh, and do your thing. Uh, this is pre-COVID. Um, that software, you come home and you watch something on Netflix, the recommendation engine, that's AI software. And I could keep going. But the, 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 the point is that the amount of consumption that's driven by software it just continues to go up. Now, let's talk about COVID. Um, so what happened in COVID? And I'll use two industries as examples. So banking, um, about 51% of cons- about 50% of consumers used online banking Uh, pre-COVID. Within a month of COVID, 73% were using online banking. And of those 73%, 75% said, the ones who are first-time users said they would continue to use it post-COVID. Grocery, 30% of people use online grocery pre-COVID. 63%, by the way, I'm surprised it's not even higher, but 60% uh, used online grocery uh, post-COVID. And again, 75% of those people said that they're gonna continue to do that. So uh, what does that mean? Uh, Well, what it means is, well, if you were to use a New York example, uh, which won't be relevant to others, maybe who are outside of New York, uh, Fresh Direct, um, uh, well, you already had an online uh, platform um, and you were good at doing online delivery. But what's really happened and what's driven so much incremental spend is if you were Walmart, um, you took probably four or five years of e-commerce investment and compressed it into like six months, five months, four months, because you now realized that your cha- your primary channel was probably going to be online, not the store. Uh, if you were a bank, uh, uh, Anthony was not going to a branch anymore. And so, really, what happened is the it wasn't the you know the e-trades of the world didn't need to make that change because they already had online channels, but all the incumbents had to fundamentally, they're all thinking about online. They're all thinking about having a great experience, but they realized it it was from being part of their experience to becoming the primary experience. And what does all that require? It requires a massive investment in software. So who, who was the beneficiary of that were these enterprise software companies who basically were providing the tech platforms required for these companies to do that. And then I'll, the last example i use is obviously just collaboration and communication, right? So we did walk out of the office in March. I am stunned at how seamless it's been. Uh, we can talk about what maybe some of the things that aren't happening, but it's been remarkably uh, seamless because of things like Zoom. Uh, Zoom's now worth $150 billion. Uh, we were joking about Zoom uh, earlier. Um, you know, I'd rather be Zoom than GE for that reason. Um, you know, and why is it worth? Just, just, just
1: it? for our listeners and viewers out there, John Darcy compared me to GE, and he told Devin that he was Zoom. I just want to make sure everybody <laughs> understands that. That's going to be something I'll be talking about. My with my therapist, I can <laughs> confirm. I can confirm old. that. Yeah, that was a, that was a brutal example, um, Devin. It, and it's phenomenal what you're saying. So I got two follow up questions, so. Yep. you said everything seamless a few things are missing what are the few things in your mind that are missing
2: well I'll just use um, you know uh, insight uh, as the example are we getting I already gave you the stats we're getting the deals done right um, uh, but first of all we're now investing significant amount of capital without having met people in person now you say well how important is that? Well, the honest answer is I can't tell you for a couple of years how important it was. Maybe it's a false negative or false positive to think you have to meet people. Um, but in the work context, uh, you know, we've onboarded, I think, 20 or 25 employees since COVID. Um, I've never met any of them in person. Um, I've interviewed some of them on Zoom, but I've never met any of them in person. The bigger challenge for them is uh, is, is going to be mentoring. So if you're a junior person um, at an organization, what used to happen, uh, we're having a negotiation on a deal. I'd say, hey, you know, John just wants to jump in my office and listen, listen in on the call. That's not happening anymore because uh, everything is structured. So either somebody's invited to a Zoom meeting or they're not invited to a Zoom meeting. So you are losing, uh, I think that collaboration, the mentoring of the junior folks. And then I think, look, not meeting people works fine when things are going great. But I think you know whether it's in business and politics or whatever it might be, personal relationships matter a lot. Um, and when you have a problem, you need that reservoir of goodwill to get to that problem.
1: And I, listen, I, I agree with that. We we lost business during the pandemic, and I'm absolutely confident of had we been able to have face to face meetings with those very people, and some of the stuff got lost in translation, and some of it got lost in the haze of what was going on in the early part of the pandemic, but Listen, I own that and uh, we move on and we learn to adapt and pivot. But if I had had the opportunity to meet with the people face-to-face, I think it would have been a better outcome for both parties. I think when you're in a misinformation situation, in a crisis, you can create a lose-lose if you're not careful. So uh, it's always always caution uh, uh, and offering up more communication to each other. Um, you're a big thinker. You're a great executor. You built an incredibly successful business. Congratulations on all that but you are also a super big thinker and a visionary. And I know you've looked at this before, so I have to ask this question. If you look at the top 10 companies in the United States, GE, for example, is, is a good example. In 2000, that would have been a top 10 company in the United States. And then a decade later, it's slipping. And two decades later, it's no longer a top 10 company. And lo and behold, we have other top 10 companies. Uh, there are a few private companies right now, Uh, That could be those types of uh, moonshots uh, over the next ten years. What do you What do you think those companies are? What What sectors of the economy? Where is the puck going uh, in the world of tech and in your space?
2: Look, I I think there's. I would say it would almost be impossible for for us to predict which ones it will be. That being said, um, I think if you think about. I, I data to me, if you think about AI, and I'll come back to your question, but if you think about AI, which I think is going to be an incredibly important, uh, will continue to be an a, importantly a, a trend, um, data is kind of the oil of AI, right? So without data, you can't really do it. I mean, you train AI using data. Um, and so companies understand that and they're kind of capturing kind of more and more uh, more and more data, um, and I think that the analytical platforms to help analyze that data are incredibly important. You know, good example of that might be Snowflake uh, that just you know went public recently. We're not investors in that. I'll just say <laughs> disclose. Um, and so I think that um, it, 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 the power of compounding is incredibly important. And I, I was reminded of that the other day. So if you compound a business at twenty percent a year for twenty years, um, it's thirty nine x. Right now, if you look at two actual examples, uh, ServiceNow compounded for the last ten years at fifty percent. Shopify compounded at the last ten years at eighty percent. Right, um, and so when you think about these companies today, like the Amazons and the um, the um, uh, Facebooks and the Alibabas and the that are anywhere from five hundred Microsoft five hundred billion to one point five trillion dollar market caps. And again, five years ago, if we were doing this interview and you said, oh, there's going to be three or four of these companies are going to be north of a trillion dollar market cap. I think most people would say there's there's no way that's happening. I think what everybody underpriced um, is the power of compounding. Uh, And it's not so much the power of compounding, because you can learn that in, in pretty basic finance. It's the durability of that compounding. And I think that what everybody, including investors like us, didn't necessarily believe that these businesses could compound for as long as they have, right? So you could have made 62 times your money in the public markets, just buying Salesforce at the IPO and not selling it. Very few people did Um, because along the way you would have read research reports that said it's massively overvalued. It's massively overvalued. It's a short it's. um, And really only one thing happened. It just kept growing. Um, And so what I see, and I'm not answering your direct question by giving you the names, but what, I see is that you've got so many subsectors in tech, and particularly in software, where you can see these categories compound. The total category uh, compound at you know fifteen percent a year. Now you'll have winners; they'll compound even north of that. So I think if if you go out ten or fifteen years, you're going to see a lot more companies with market caps that are five hundred billion and a trillion dollars in the space. Tech's already twenty eight percent of total market cap, and that's by the way the little seeker in the market. The market's great. The market's great. The reality is, software's up thirty three percent. Financials are down twenty one percent. Real estate's down five percent. um, you know, the S and P is up three three and a half percent.
1: But this twenty eight percent has really driven a lot of the market. So, I mean, you're up a really good question because uh, you know I. How do you see through that? How do you see through that fog? Uh, research reports, valuation. How do you teach an investor, your your own clients, yourself, your team to stay disciplined and stay in something? Uh, look at the returns that you would have had if you just bought Amazon, as an example, from the IPO. What, what, what do you say to people well, regarding so we that? We've made, we made um, well one the number one question
2: we get from you know both existing LPs and prospective LPs is our valuation stretched, right? We've been getting the same question for five years. By the way, it's not always easy to answer that question uh, because anytime you look at something and you look at it and you say, well, it's the most expensive it's been in 10 years, the easy answer is to say, therefore, it must be overvalued. Um, But that isn't necessarily true if it continues to compound for 15% for the next 10 years. Uh, the, the, The question is figuring out how. We've made plenty of mistakes over time of s- distributing stocks too early, selling companies, um, you know, too early. Uh, I think what we try to spend most of our time on today, and I, I would far from claim that we've uh, perfected it, and uh, uh, we probably make more mistakes on this than almost anything else, um, is really trying to figure out sustainable growth, right? Not okay, did it grow one hundred percent this year? What, but what can it grow? at for 10 years? What can it grow at for 15 years? Um, And we spend a lot of, that's what we spend a lot of time on. And we look at who are the incumbents in that space? uh, What does their product quality look like? How much disruption can happen? But you know, in my view, like the best markets aren't disruptor markets. The best markets are where you're creating a new market. That being said, it's also the hardest, it's the hardest, it's the hardest thing to figure out, right? So, I mean, I always like to use examples of companies we're not investors in, right? But I'll use Uber as a great example, when we looked at Uber, uh, we had a chance to invest in one of the early rounds, uh, still very expensive. We passed and we passed for like a very simple reason. We did an analysis that said the size of the uh, New York and San Francisco cab market, what is it? And we did a calculation. And then when we were looking for a valuation, that was like six times the size of the size of the market. I said, well, this is two cities. We're gonna pay six times the market. Like how can you ever make money on this investment? Except we missed something like really, really fundamental which is that when you change the way people consume that pro- uh, service and you put it on their phone in San Francisco where cab service had been historically very, very bad, you totally change the demand curve, right? So now the size of the markets today in those two markets is 10 or 12 times what it was when we looked at that investment. We missed that. We missed we, we looked at existing market and said, we're just going to take existing market and move it to us as opposed to this, this massive new market that can get created that we can own you know, that we can that we can own a significant portion of. So what we try to do and we make lots of mistakes that being a great one great example of one rather um, is try to really be thoughtful about what a mar- how a market might evolve over time. I don't know if that
1: answer I, no, 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 I think it's an amazing message because you're basically saying look we're gonna make mistakes we'll miss things but if we stay in our band within in our discipline, we're going to hit the target more often than not. And that's basically the, the lesson.
2: What I say is, guys, let, we're going to make mistakes. Let's try not to make the same mistake twice. right? right. Let's make new mistakes. And I, I think it's important, it's important to make mistakes. Uh, it's just try to avoid them the second time.
1: Let me, I'm, I'm going to shift gears because the irrepressible John Dorsey is going to come on. We've got tons of audience participation, and we want to allow the audience to engage with you as well. i want to shift gears into one of the big facts of our time that we're living in something i'm i'm uh, i'm always worried about and i'm i'm sure that you're thinking about it and i'd like to get your great mind on this topic uh, we watch a city like new york suffer uh, higher homelessness people defecating on the street we see what's going on in san francisco and some of the other great cities of the united states and i'm wondering what your thoughts are about that and i'm wondering about What seems to be happening more than ever before is a separation between the haves and have-nots. What are your thoughts on that? And and, and what do you think we can do? Well, we're probably veering away from tech. Um,
2: You know, I think that, um, look, I agree with you. Um, I think that if you want to see the impact of wealth concentration, people should go back and read about the French Revolution. It it doesn't really end well if you're sitting at the top of the heap. Um, So I think that, um, how, but how do we change that? I think that the, the challenge we have as, as a country, and this I don't even think this is a political comment one way or the other, uh, is we're way too short-term oriented. Um, and if we're going to change the game on what you're talking about, it's gonna start first with educational opportunity. Uh, that's how you change the game. Um, and we have to make sure that we are giving, look, I view myself as incredibly lucky. Uh, I got access to great education. My family was able to afford that great education. I didn't have to work during college. So I could spend all my time studying, put myself into this career. My, my dad was an immigrant, um, you know, and uh, I I I was very lucky. There's thousands of people out there that are just as smart, if not smarter, who just didn't get that same set of opportunities. Um, and so for me, it's long term investment in kind of education is really the long-term antidote. Now, obviously, there's things you can do around tax policy to change things in the short term. I don't know that they change the long-term game. Um, and so I, there's certainly changes in tax policy that-
1: Give me give me one possible. example, then we'll turn it over to John. What, what, what's an example of tax policy?
2: Well, look, I mean, if that means you, you, you know the ones that people are talking about, right? One would be in, um, you know, certainly one, the simple one is an increase in, in ordinary income tax rates. The other would be uh, elimination of the capital gains tax rate right? Uh, and that's one which is very controversial, uh, but one could make uh, an argument that, well, and I'm a beneficiary of that that capital gains tax rate. Um, the flip side is, if you think about this, you could say, well, uh, one is uh, a tax on labor. Why is a tax on labor so much different than the tax on capital? Um, and if you wanted to change wealth concentration over time you would bring those rates closer together i mean like that's a very rational economic argument obviously there are lots of people on the other side of that that you know there, there's pros and cons from a policy standpoint but that's certainly one uh policy prescription if you were trying to
1: address the issue that you're talking about one one last question devin if you could be anything other than what you are right now in this lifetime what what would it be and and I'll tell you this, I would want to be the starting first baseman for the Mets. And so that was never going to happen to me due to my size and scale and my athleticism. I'm stuck here at Skybridge. Well, what would it be? I remember when my uh, when my son was
2: uh, in sixth or seventh grade, he told me he decided he was going to go to Georgia Tech. And I said, well, why are you going to go? why are you going to go to Georgia Tech? I mean, the baseball player that he loved uh, who, were, who was a Yankee player at the time had gone to Georgia Tech. I said, "Caitlin, the odds of you being the first Indian baseball player are pretty low. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not going to pick sports. Um, you know, look, I actually truly have have and still have a, a passion in for science. So I think if I weren't doing, I would want to do something that I love and I love what I do, but I also think I could have loved being a doctor. Um, and I, I think if it was not this, it'd be medicine.
1: Well, I, I, I think it's a very honest answer. And again, I think it's another re- refreshment for the younger people that are listening. Pick something you really love. The first job that I had, unfortunately, was in real estate investment banking. I was terrible at it. I got fired from it. See, John Kelly wasn't the first person to fire me. I was fired before that. And the reason I, I was fired is I stunk at the job. Had I just gone into something that I really liked, Uh, and would have been able to have succeeded from the get-go. And so uh, it's just a learning lesson for people. I'm going to turn it over to Darcy, who's about to be fired because he called me GE. Uh, (laughs) But we'll let you enjoy him for the next 15 minutes as he asks you these questions. Great. Thanks, Anthony.
0: Devin, it's a pleasure to have you on. There's a concept uh, that you speak and write about a lot called the scale-up phase uh, for a tech company. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, basically, your thesis is that we call companies startups for way too long. And there's actually a key phase that comes after that startup phase. Uh, could you tell us more about that scale-up concept and, and what the implications of that are? And also, is there a role for governments to play in supporting those scale-ups as well?
2: Yeah, so hit, hit the first part. Um, so we talked earlier about kind of the stages that you know, we invest at. And, you know, when I think about a startup, and I think startup, as you rightly point out, their companies, I mean, you'll read a Wall Street Journal article about a company with like $150 million of revenue. It's a Silicon Valley startup. Uh, like, that's really not a Silicon Valley startup. What we think about when we think about scale up is that you really feel good that product market fit has been established. Uh, so what do I mean by that? If I talk to 10 customers, they say, I buy this product for this reason, and it works for this reason really, really well. Um, and do you, do you use it for this? Maybe not. Do you use it for that? Maybe not. But for this thing, I really like it. I'm going to probably buy more of it. Um, so you've really established product market fit. Now, there are companies, including companies I have investment in, that have revenues, but they don't really have product market fit. What does that mean? I call five customers. I get five different answers of why they bought the product, right? That's fine because you got some revenue, but it doesn't really scale up, Which <laughs> which? is which, which goes to what your point. Why doesn't it scale up? Well, if you have five different reasons you bought a company, like well, what exactly is a marketing strategy for the business? How do you actually figure out what customers uh, you know to target, and what's the right skill set for the people to go do that marketing and that selling? Just to use sales and marketing as an example. So, in in, in a true scale up company, you've got you've got product market fit. Um, you know you've got um, you know, you generally you've, you've got a management team. The management team might not be fully formed to take it to the next level. Uh, and really the investment at that point is figuring out how to make it scalable, which is why you're saying scale up. And so what does that typically mean? Well, it means how do you uh, uh, really figure out uh, taking, how do you increase sales at the same or better unit cost? If I did like, you know, bring it, bring it down to crux, I'm oversimplifying to keep the answer short, right? Um, how do you do that? Uh, and that's one of the reasons we have the on-site team, which is run by my partner, Hillary Gosher, um, is to really have a true understanding of for each functional area of a scale-up organization, what are the best practices, right? And that's why our entire organization is built to really focus on companies that are at that phase.
0: So... We have a lot of uh, participants on these SALT talks at our SALT conferences. We've also hosted SALT conferences internationally in Singapore, in Tokyo, in Abu Dhabi. And we've been blown away by the emergence of entrepreneurialism and technology ecosystems outside the United States. India is another great example. We have a lot of Indian constituents that come to our international conferences as well. What are trends that we're seeing in terms of... uh, foreign or international venture capital that U.S. investors may not be aware of.
2: Um, do you, Just to make sure I understand the question, do you mean as it relates to U.S. firms investing internationally, or do you mean in terms of international firms investing in the U.S.? I just want to make sure I get the I'm question. talking
0: about U.S. investors or investors from around the world investing in local tech ecosystems around oh. the world. So, you know, for example, you're having to see a company like Google sort of wave the white flag in India and invest in Reliance yep. Industries because of sort of a Tech nationalism or digital decolonization, uh, yeah. and, and you're seeing tech ecosystems spring up in different areas of the world. Is that something that you guys are observing, or, or how are you, you know, in investing based on the globalization of tech?
2: Yes, yeah, so let me separate into two things, right? There's the strategics who put the flag up because they have to, because you have to have a relationship with the local government, and there's certain countries like India and China where you know there's just a a, a reason why you have to do that, right? Right. So that's, that's one category, but let me address, that's not really our category, right? Um, so let me address the other category. Look, the world on tech has really gotten flat to use somebody else's uh, title. Right. Um, and it used to be that we saw great entrepreneurs, we'd see great companies, but we didn't necessarily always have, you know, we, you didn't always have the quality of management that we would find here. And people would be like, oh, Silicon Valley, the best management's in Silicon Valley. We're increasingly finding great management everywhere in the world. And then the other interesting thing is, uh, where do you find great tech? Well, you can find great tech anywhere. So we've got, I think now, um, a couple billion dollars invested in Israel. Um, and Israel has probably become one of our most active uh, uh, geographies. There's fantastic tech talent in Israel. It used to be people that are only around areas like security, but now it's across lots of different areas. Um, But we've invested in uh, a a lot in Israel, we've invested in Australia, we've invested in pretty much around the world, the areas, the two markets we've probably been less active in, um, uh, though recently, we've done a bunch of investments in China, uh, have been India and China. And this is for a very simple reason, they have a very robust local venture capital ecosystem. So if the deal is getting to Devon, um, there's probably 47 people who said no already. Um, And I don't have the local network in those countries to kind of talk to the 10 people. Like in the US, if I get a company coming the door, there's probably 10 people I can call to, to, to make an assessment. I don't really have that same network in those places. Right. Uh, but I think that that's gonna to continue to happen. Berlin's another, uh, you know, Germany, we have lots of investments in Germany. We're very, very active in Europe. Uh, and the market is getting more competitive in that it used to be that one of the benefits for us was we were willing to kind of go anywhere Problem is, so is everybody else now. Uh, So we run into a lot of the same competition no matter where we go.
0: So Anthony asked a question earlier about income inequality and ways that you would solve it. And I want to sort of ask that question through a different lens, focusing on tech and data. And there's that existential question about whether technology is going to be our doom or be our savior. And so technology has obviously maybe displaced some jobs and it's changed our, our society and harmed labor in certain ways. But there's also plenty of ways uh, how tech and data can help solve those problems as well, how do we ensure that tech and data are a force for good? And how can they also be part of sort of this push for social inclusion, economic inclusion factors as well? Well, look, I think you, when you t- think about uh,
2: uh, tech and data and you think about kind of public policy, um, like the interesting contrast would, would be the US and China. Um, right, so if you if you you know do any reading on AI, what you would find is that uh, a lot of AI applications are more advanced in China, right? Well, why? Uh, well, one, they have a lot more people, and two, the people's um, comfort with their data being uh, maybe it's not comfort, but their willingness to let their data be shared—it's not optional, right? Um, and we have a much higher standard of what we believe for privacy uh, as a as a society. Um, and that's not a value judgment pro or pro or, or negative to China or the U.S., but what it does do, it allows a country to build a comparative advantage in certain areas, right? So if you wanted to build self-driving uh, uh, cars, China probably has more data than we do. Uh, they've actually built cities with entire parts of the city that are structured for self-driving cars, so they can collect kind of more data. Um, I think we're there's not lots of um, social implications around self-driving, there's safety implications. But when you get to things like privacy and you get to security applications, so can I, I'm walking through a building and do you take a picture of my face, identify who I am and and and, and take action based on that? Or people are aware that in China that they have these like effectively social scores uh, for every citizen. Um, and these are things that obviously would not be acceptable in the US. So I think in any uh, in any one of these constructs, um, data can be used in a positive way. Uh, so most people would say that if we could, you know, the interesting thing about self-driving cars, just to use that example for a second, is that it's it's when a self-driving car kills a person, uh, like it happened in Arizona with Uber, and seven, five or six states shut down self-driving car testing. Right. And yet that same day, probably twenty or thirty people were killed by a drunk driver. Um, and you would probably. 80% reduce that with self-driving cars. So the interesting thing with all of these from a policy standpoint, or if you remember when the two uh, Boeing flights because of software flaw, which is horrible, um, crashed, uh, and you had hundreds of lives lost, um, it was, there was an outcry that was disproportionate uh, relative to what happens when the same thing happens because of pilot error, right? And so, there is a societal acceptance uh, that needs to happen uh, around these things, which is which is really really complicated. Um, and certain societies are going to do it by fiat, China, like this is what we're doing. Right. And others are going to progress over time. It just takes time for societies to kind of get used to these changes.
0: So you're no stranger to public service. You served on the board of OPIC, which is the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. For those who aren't familiar. You're on the advisory board of the U.S. Export-Import Bank, which is somewhere where China has sort of uh, leapfrogged the United States in terms of how they use these these types of organizations to drive investment. Um, and you are also on the FCC Advisory Council. So if you can wave a magic wand from a policy perspective to or a regulatory solution to drive more investment into the types of companies that can, you know, improve quality of life in the United States or or, or other elements of our society, what would that policy solution be?
2: I don't know that there is an easy. I mean, I've thought a lot about this. I don't know that there is an easy policy prescription. And you know, one of the things, look, I think that I think one of the things you're seeing right now um, is an increased going the other way is probably an increased in uh, interest on the part of Washington to regulate the tech industry. Um, and some of that is, I think that, uh, and this is a personal opinion. Uh, but, but some of that is the tech industry's fault, right? I think for too long a time, the tech industry has kind of taken this view of we're out here doing good, you know, kind of saving the world, just kind of leave us alone, right? right? You don't need to worry about us. You know, we're making it easy for you to find information and we're doing all these great things. And we took a very arrogant view uh, as an industry, I mean, um, uh, towards government. And we're seeing the backlash of that right now. Um, and I think like every industry, um, some regulatory oversight um, can make sense. Uh, and then the one that I think, it, I don't really think it matters who gets elected uh, it, at next week. I think as it relates to, for example, social platforms, there's likely going to be more regulatory focus today than there was before. So I don't think, I think the odds of the government putting a policy in that's going to significantly change the rate of adoption or the curve around tech is is pretty low. What I go back to though and to your point is there's still this massive digital divide and COVID really, really brought it out, right? So the biggest issue in my home uh, when everybody was home for school is how come we don't have the one gigabyte thing so that we're all streaming faster, right? Um, well, what happened is where, on the other hand, what's happening is you have people who have one laptop at home or one computer at home, and they have two or three kids. And so this digital divide, is, which is only getting exa- exacerbated um, in, in the world we're in today, we really need to fix. And there needs to be a massive investment on the part of government, in my view, um, to uh, fix that uh, by making broadband available everywhere. Um right. It's it is, it's, it's, it's crazy to me that living in, in a country that's as rich as ours, uh, that's supposed to be the envy of the world, uh, that we have so many people who don't have, who don't have availability to the internet access. Um, I mean, I remember when I was, in, uh, I was on vacation in Africa, uh, I had better data uh, on my phone uh, in Africa. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tease Anthony, certainly in the Hamptons. Uh, and um, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I, it, that's true, but I say it facetiously. But there's a much more fundamental kind of issue. Uh, and if I would focus on something right now, uh, I wouldn't focus on the government trying to come up with a regulation or a rule that's going to help the tech industry. I think that's likely not going to work. Right. But what we what they can do is things like this and making. uh, making it available, making technology available, making broadband accessible so that everybody can have access to the same tools that everybody on this call has access to, that's powerful because you know what? Somewhere there's a kid who should be watching this right now and watching all the salt talks and getting educated on all these issues, and they can. Why? Because they don't have a laptop with a broadband connection. That's a travesty.
0: Yeah, when people think about infrastructure investment in the United States, they think about fixing roads and making our airport terminals look better and making trains go faster. But really, it's the digital infrastructure that's in the biggest need of of updating. And we had a speaker on SALT Talks uh, about a month or so ago talking about Chattanooga, Tennessee. They had a very smart, forward-thinking Chamber of Commerce that said, you know what, let's just – give ourselves really fast internet. Let's give ourselves gigabit speed internet and see what happens. And what happened was you had tech companies that flocked to Chattanooga who were able to leverage the, the speed of the internet and the quality of the tech infrastructure to start you know, building companies and, and processing data in ways that you couldn't if you didn't have that same type of uh, you know, tech forward approach. Yeah. But Devin, we're going to we're going to leave it there. We're so grateful for your time and and grateful for you uh joining us on Salt Talks. Anthony, you want to have a final word for Devin?
1: No, listen, it's a it's a brilliant conversation and congratulations on an amazing career. And I think you left a lot of things for younger people on this call as well as uh, seasoned investors to think about when they're running their portfolios or thinking about investing. Are you raising another fund now, Devin by any chance or no? <laughs> uh we, we we closed our last fund in uh
2: in uh in, in March. You're uh, shut out, Anthony.
1: Uh, but, no, uh I'm just I am saying that for promotion, but I'm not okay. I'm, I'm a very shy reserved person. You know, I have a lot of introverted aspects to my personality. Think, you so you got shy in the dictionary, there's a picture of you. There is. There's right it's right there next to me and the several other luminaries of shyness. But but I just you know I wanted to bring it up because uh you're the type of person that's gonna make a fortune for people in the future, and uh, I wish you great success, and thank you for joining us on Salt Talks. Anthony, John, thanks so much. It was was a lot of fun. Thank you.